Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest is a writer who has kind of a dual track writing career. A previous book of hers includes Daughter's Keeper. Her new book is called Love and Other Impossible Pursuits. She also writes Bommy Track Murder Mysteries. She also writes columns for various publications, Inflaming Attitudes Among Many Women. She's also somebody I've known because we've shared carpool duties before. Will you please welcome author Ayelet Waldman to West Coast Live. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show, Sedge. The, uh, the book Love and uh, Other Impossible Pursuits. All right, we know that love is an impossible pursuit in, in many ways, but what are some of the other impossible pursuits? In the book or in my life? Well, just in philosophically. Philosophically? Oh, getting your children ready for school, finding a decent boyfriend. I don't know. What else? There are many impossible pursuits. What is the, uh, the, the is it uh, Beshert? Beshert? Beshert, yeah. Beshert. The Berchert, the idea of, of the perfect other, plays an important role in this book. And that's, a, that's an old um, biblical midrash, which means story, lesson that you learn from a story. And the way that it goes is that um, before every person is born, the angel of death performs this duty, takes the soul of the individual and shows them their life. He takes them through all the years of their life, all the people they will meet, all the people they will come across, their children, their spouse. And, and during the course of this, this perambulation through your future, you are shown your soulmate, the person who is your perfect match, the person with whom you should spend the rest of your life. And that's your Beshert, your intended. And at the end of this, the angel takes you back and taps you right here in that little space between your nose and your lip, your philtrum, creating that tiny little dent that we all have. And then you forget everything. And then you're born as a baby. And if, if in the course of your life you meet that person, that perfect intended, you have a moment of recognition, of remembering. And that is the idea that you will meet, if that, the idea of soulmate, of intended, of Beshert. And in your book, your protagonist sees what she believes is her, is her intended and uh, marries him. But he's married at the time, has a small son. And the story is about what it is to be a, a stepmother, but at the same time being a mother who has also lost a child, uh, which would, I think, overload just about any sane person. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to write about that feeling that... The, the feeling of maternal ambivalence. I wanted to write about the, uh, the idea that you can love a child and also feel incredibly ambivalent towards him. So this book began as a kind of exploration of the idea of maternal ambivalence, and it seemed to me that the stepmother was the perfect place to, to have that discussion because here's a person who's, who comes into a situation because she falls in love with a man, and then she is expected to love the children, the child of that man, as if that comes naturally, as if it's um, what, what anyone would do. But I think most often, particularly when the, the, a child is, um, you know, the woman who comes into this relationship becomes the focus for this child of all of the negative things, all of the, you know, his parents broke up, and here she is the symbol of it all. And the mother, stepmother, is expected to love this child like any mother loves her own child. And I think it's incredibly difficult. It's almost a miraculous occurrence when it happens. 
It's really not until the end of the book does she finally seek out those shelves of books of other people who've written about the experience of being a step-parent. I'm interested in the, the, the child, of course, who is a, a memorable character, William, who's five and precocious beyond almost all sort of human measure, you know, reading full novels, uh, able to have almost with an eidetic memory to remember obscure facts about Central Park, as this is uh, set in New York. And this character of, of William serves as an articulate go-between as I suppose I think stepchildren that move between houses do, they're go-betweens between, and, and they sometimes carry the pain with them. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that role of peacemaker but also manipulator, I think, is a really common role for children who are in these, these complicated marriages. And I wanted to write about one of those kids. I also wanted to write about, you know, anybody who's ever had children in their lives knows that occasionally you meet children that you don't like. They're unlikable. They're loathsome. And we're not allowed to say that, right? Children are also marvelous. And if we don't like them, it's our fault. But the truth is they're people. And just like people, they can be vile little creatures. So I wanted to write about that completely understandable emotion that you might have when you have a child in your life that you do not like. But how awful when that's a child that you're expected to not only love but parent. And here he is. And really, you just can't stand the little bugger. I thought it was okay. Well, that's the point, I think, is that, you know, we, over the course of the novel, you're supposed to find, William grows and changes and changes into someone that, that Amelia can fall in love with and vice versa, too. But also the role of precocity. I mean, this, this kid is so precocious at age five that he's able to uh, engage in conversations that many other five-year-olds wouldn't be able to. Well, you know, I think that's a parlor trick. I mean, all of us know nowadays all children are profoundly gifted. They're, you know, they're stupendously talented. I spoke with, I spoke with a preschool uh, leader the other day, and she said, I never encounter any normal children anymore. <laughs> exactly. They're all special. Absolutely. I mean, everyone has the experience of going to back-to-school night at school, and invariably some parent will raise their hand and say, what accommodations do you make for my profoundly gifted child? And I always want to say, you know, who is this Stephen Hawking of the second grade? You know, but... But I think what it really means, what, what happens with these kids, it's not so much that they're profoundly guilty. They're, they're plenty smart. But we demand that they function in the adult world. So they learn these things that are essentially parlor tricks. My, little, my son, at 17 months old, could recite the planets in order from the sun. Mercury, Venus, Earth. It wasn't, you know, it was, people would hear that and they would fall on the ground because they thought he was such a genius. But the truth is, memorizing that was about like memorizing the different Teletubbies. And he could have done that and nobody would have thought that he was, you know, profoundly, magically intelligent. But it was just words that he learned. I, I read of one woman, one mother who was <clears throat> very proud that her son was able to recognize all the supermodels of her fashion magazines. There you go. And same, 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 same trick. thing. Yeah. Same thing. You know, and if it was the planets, then we would have thought that he was very intelligent. And now we think he's, you know, a latter-day Paris Hilton. <laughs> See in the room. <laughs> what does he still know the the, uh, the planets? No. Well, I don't know. He's out there. If he, if you know him, Zeke, stand up and shout him out. <laughs> Yeah. He, he, knows, he, he just, just said no. <laughs> Along the way, uh, there's the uh, there's also a lot about the sort of tangentially about the life of a of a corporate Upper East Side lawyer life, Upper East Side, Upper West Side, and the law has been 
part of your background, you've been a, a public defender in, in Los Angeles, and I, you've clearly encountered a corporate lawyer mentality where somebody is just working all the time and hardly has any time for their children. They're the nannies that go, they have their well-equipped, they're the town cars that pick them up. Absolutely. That was I, my first job out of law school was at one of those very fancy law firms. My first job out of law school, I made more money that year than anyone in my family had ever earned before. And then my income began to plummet a year because I went to public interest law and then I went to teach. And, and with every year, I earned less and less money. But that one year was this amazing. And I, I was so excited. I was going to pay off my loans. It was going to be this very glitzy existence. I would have lunch at Boulay and all these wonderful restaurants. And every evening, a car would come at 9 o'clock and take me home. But every evening, a car would come at 9 o'clock and take me home, as in I was working till 9 o'clock every single night. And suddenly, after a year of this, I was... I never saw the light of day except when I was on my way to a business lunch. I was, you know, spending all my time at my desk. I had my entire wardrobe at work because of all the, you know, I would change out of my this outfit and change it to that outfit. And if I slept, if I didn't sleep, I was up all night at the office. I needed a whole new set of clothes. And I started, you know, I would look at these people who that was their lives. That was a career of 50 or 50 years of lawyering in this environment. And I thought, and about a year of it was enough to make me want to kill myself. I don't know how they survived. And the law that you then took on, I'm, I'm sure it didn't have necessarily shorter hours. No, but there's something about staying at work till nine o'clock when the next day you are arguing on behalf of someone's life and you know that 20 years in prison rides on the balance of your argument and staying all night at work and knowing that a waste management company will be able to continue to pollute if you do your job really well, that kind of lends it a different feeling. Yeah. There's an amazing amount of takeout food in this book that people eat. There's not a lot of swank restaurants. <laughs> yeah, no, that's because it's a book about parents, and as parents all know, your life is around, surrounded by takeout food or, you know, Annie's macaroni and cheese. You, you've sometimes written pieces where you talk about your uh, ambivalence of, of being a mother, and it sometimes creates ire, uh, and, and you've, you've received various emails expressing this, this ire in perhaps less than pleasant ways. I would... I think that it's probably more about the senders of these letters and what you've said, that you touch something in these correspondence that they're afraid of within themselves. Well, it always does seem interesting to me because there has been a series of, of minor tempests and tiny teapots over things that I've written. And, um, you know, I, I disagree with people all the time. You know, I'm a fairly cantankerous person, but it's never occurred to me to write an angry letter. And I started thinking, you know... Given I've never written to Bill O'Reilly, someone who I despise, and I thought, what is the difference between feeling like you disagree with someone and feeling like what you really want to do is get on a website and trash that person, which has happened to me, or, or write them letters about how their children should be taken away from them, which happens to me far more frequently than um, makes me comfortable. And I think it has to do with, it, it is like... When you write a piece like that, particularly a, a, when you write pieces about parenting or about women my age in their 30s and 40s, you are writing a Rorschach blot. So there's me writing what I think, and then there's the people looking at this piece and reacting to it in a way that has very little to do with me. I try to remind myself, as the phone calls are made to the Alameda County Child Protective Services, that what they see is, is something totally different than I've written, and what they see is a reflection of their lives, or what they fear might be a reflection of their lives. I think that, I mean, fear is a, is a very powerful force, and that's one of the 
the subliminal emotions, and not so subliminal emotions that runs through your book, feel of be, a fear of being abandoned, fear of people not getting back together, fear of, of loss, fear of, uh, uh, of uh, ill health. I mean, the, the mother of, of the boy is, is a neurotic physician who uh, is, uh, imagines that her, her son is lactose intolerant. Right. That, that was this. I, that's exactly one of the the themes that I was trying to get to. That sort of crazy fears you develop about your children and about yourself. And you know, we've invented a whole series of fantasies in our in contemporary life because our lives are actually incredibly safe and protected. So, in for we yeah, knock on wood, can heart. Foo, foo, foo. What we have to do is we have to create this illusion of danger and then respond by protecting our children. And th- you think. One of the ways that you see this most clearly is this fear of child abduction, which every parent has. I know I have it. I'm sure every parent has it. The actual FBI statistics show that fewer that the, the rate of stranger abduction is consistent and has always been consistent. No more children are being snatched off the street now than were in the 70s or 50s or 30s. So here we are. We're living in a society that's as safe from that particular peril as when we were children and we were allowed unlimited freedom. I mean, what did we, what did our mother say to us every morning during summer vacation? You know, goodbye, go out and play. And then they shut the door and barred it and you know. So, but our children are never, how many times has a contemporary parent said the phrase, go out and play? I would bet very few. My kids go out on there. I'm, I'm really adamant that I let my children have this kind of freedom that they can go explore their neighborhoods. And they go, they go out on their bicycles. They go out, and they can't find anybody to play with. We live in this neighborhood in Berkeley that is full of children, full of children, and there's nobody out on the street to play with. Cars drive faster, I think, than they did in the 50s on, the, on residential streets. There are more cars. Right, That's right. my fear. Well, that's you and my husband racing like Garp after the cars, shrieking at them to slow down. Ah, I'll give you that. <laughs> There's a, uh, there are children's uh, books, most prominently Lyle Lyle Crocodile, that, that show up in the book. As a, and reading books to my children, there are always lessons and metaphors that come in. But I wonder what was it about the, the Lyle Lyle Crocodile story, that, the, the metaphors that you wanted to bring into this book? Well, um, first of all, I love that book, and my kids love those books. But what I wanted, Lyle is this crocodile, this dangerous, many-toothed creature who's brought into a family. And, you know, a crocodile doesn't belong in a family. A crocodile's dangerous, and a crocodile's scary. But over the course of these books, he becomes a part of this family, and the family can no longer live without him. And that is how I saw this main character, Amelia, the stepmother. She is a crocodile, you know, a dangerous, scary, slimy, many-toothed creature who's brought into this family. And the question is, will she remain, or will she be sent off to the zoo where she belongs? You, uh, I think, I think you, uh, you're a little harsh on Amelia. Well, she's harsh on herself. Yeah, I think. And so, and since I wrote her, then yes, I guess I'm harsh on her. <laughs> but that's where, you know, she's clearly where my sympathies lie as well. And the redemption that occurs in the book, I've, I found very moving. And, and how William, the little boy, is able by force of everyone's desires for him, helps resolve would have been just emotionally fraught issues throughout the, the novel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's one of the things that was most important to me, the, the notion that William, who Amelia sees as the agent of her 
despair ultimately come becomes the agent of her redemption. There's a, a, a scene in there that takes place in a, in a bakery, a chain of bakeries in in, uh, in Manhattan, and there's a desire. Uh, Amelia imagines that she can get a baker to create a pink, lactose-free cupcake for William as a as a special treat. <laughs> Did that ever happen? Did that yet happen? Well, this it's the, it's Le Pain Quotidien, which is a, a chain of bakeries, and they don't actually have any cupcakes at all, lactose-free or otherwise. Oh, that's all fiction. Wait till you're on Oprah again. I know. It was my James Fry moment. I I, <laughs> I gave this bakery chain. I love this bakery chain. I love that. But they don't have cupcakes. And I sort of thought of this as my way to maybe encourage them to have cupcakes. That maybe now if enough people read my book and go into La Pan Quotidien and request a cupcake, that they will see that they're, they should change their non-cupcake ways, their cupcake-phobic ways. And... And provide a good because they their food their their baked goods are so delicious. I could only imagine how fabulous a cupcake would be from there. I'm getting hungry already. I'm gonna, the uh, the book is called Love and Other Impossible Pursuits, which may well include the pursuit for the perfect pink strawberry cupcake muffin in New York City. It's by Ayelet Waldman, published by Doubleday. Uh, thank you very much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Ayelet Waldman. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.